Amen. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Cornerstone. If you're here for the first time, can I give you a big welcome? My name's Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. If you've got a Bible, if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 7, we're in the middle of a series in Nehemiah, and the book of Nehemiah is chronologically the last book of the Old Testament. As you look through time after the events of Nehemiah, there is 400 years of silence before the angels proclaim the news that Jesus Christ is going to be born. And the book of Nehemiah is about God's people who were in trouble and shame because their walls of the city were broken down. And Nehemiah, who was part of God's people, was born in exile and worked in a place called Susa, heard about this news, and under the favor of a pagan king, the Persian king, returns to Jerusalem and uh, begins to build the walls of the city. Now, after 52 days of work in the midst of persecution, internal sin, external attacks, the wall is finished. We saw that last week, chapter 6, verse 15. But what we're going to see today is that the heartbeat of the city, at the heartbeat of God's community, is not the walls or the buildings, but rather the people. The people. So let's read Nehemiah 7. Verses 1 through to 7. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hanani the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people, and people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who he had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judea, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mishpareth, Bigvar, Nahum, and Barna. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise and we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would speak to us. As we look at this, this just seems like a list of names and numbers, but we thank you that your word is profitable for us today, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts for your glory's sake, I pray these things. Amen. Whilst he was the governor of California, the former president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, in 1967, whilst talking to a group of students students said this, the man who said eternal vigilance is the price of liberty was not speaking lightly or tritely. Eternal vigilance is indeed the price of liberty, and that price is not too high to pay. Ronald Reagan was sharing with a group of law students who were just about to break into the world of law. But I'm telling you this, folks, he could have well been writing a commentary on the book of Nehemiah. Just by that statement. 
See, the war was finished. The gates were in. The work of rebuilding the wall was done, but Nehemiah knew that God's people were still vulnerable. God's people still need to be vigilant in order for them to live out the freedom that they had as being God's people. See, vulnerable to the ongoing opposition that they've been facing whilst building the wall. Also vulnerable to the potential attacks from other nations. And now on one level, and in some sense, they had something that was worth taking by other nations, which made them more vulnerable. See, the walls were important, but the people of God, the community of God, was the heartbeat of what it was to be God's people. Remember in chapter 1, when Nehemiah's brother came to visit him, Nehemiah asked regarding the Jews. He asked regarding his people. His concern wasn't to do with the walls. His concern was to do with the people first. And remember when we read in chapter 2, when Nehemiah uh, 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 had been so moved by the state of the people that he, he, he's asked the question by his boss, the king of Persia. He goes, what's, what's wrong with your face, basically? That's what he says. He says, well, well, no wonder I'm like this. My people, they're in shame. They're, 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 they're in trouble. Can I, can I go back so I can rebuild? And that word rebuild in chapter 2, verse 5, is a word that is used in the Old Testament, not about the rebuilding of walls. It's often used regarding the rebuilding of people, the rebuilding of the community. See, Nehemiah, folks, sees the rebuilding of the wall as the first step. But the rebuilding of the people, the covenant community of God, was the heartbeat of everything for God's people. And we'll see as we go through chapter 7 and into chapter 8, the rebuilding of God's people, now that the walls are finished, starting to happen. And this morning we're going to see three things. Number one is this the heart of God's community. Number two, the roll call of God's community. And number three, the contribution of the people to God's community. So number one, the heart of God's community. Straight away, verse one, we see that at the heart of God's community is worship. See, once the walls had been built and they were in the right heights, and the doors were in the right places, he appointed gatekeepers. He appointed the singers and the Levites. That's the first people he appointed to stand by the doors. Now, it's interesting, folks. When you think of protecting a group of people from attack, I don't think clergy and singers would be the first people you think of. Agreed? Agreed? You wouldn't. Yeah, well, someone said that a little bit too loud. <laughs> what are you trying to say? Me and Jay could take you all. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? We don't think of, of clergy and singers to be the first people to stand guard. In fact, in some sense, they would be the last people we would think of. But Nehemiah is aware, and folks, we should also be aware, that the greatest threat to the community of God's people is the issue of the human heart. The issue of the human heart. See, God's people were in a mess because their affections had been captured by other things. Their hearts had been pulled away from God. They've been pulled, pulled away from God's people, and that made them vulnerable. See, we see in verse 1 that at the heart of God's community is and should be the worship of God. See, the role of the Levites and the singers was to point people in worship to God. 
That's the first thing that he was thinking of. See, folks, liberty for God's people was not found in the protection of bricks and mortar, but rather in right relationship with God, the God of the Bible. But folks, that is true for us. If the worship of God is not central to who we are, we are vulnerable. We are vulnerable. If our affections and our gaze is taken from Jesus, then no amount of ministry work, building projects, community outreach will sustain us. See, the reason is, it's because we as human beings have been made to worship. And because of sin, the book of Romans tells us that because we've been made to worship and because of the distortion of sin, we've exchanged the truth of who God is for a lie and we've ended up worshiping created things instead of God who is the creator because we can't help but worship. It tells us in Romans 1, 21 to 25, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him, but they became in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were dark, and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Folks, we are made to worship, but we've exchanged the truth of the one that we are made to worship, and we end up worshiping the things that he has created, not him. And later on in the same book, in Romans 12, it tells us that our life for God should flow from our worship to him. Romans 12, 1, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, given of yourself in light of what God has done for you, is the rational and right response. You have this urge to worship? Look to the one who gave everything in order for you to have your eyes opened to see the glory of who he is and worship him. Right at the beginning, at the heart of God's community, we see worship. We then, verse 2, see godly leadership. See, Nehemiah appoints his brother Hananiah and Hananiah. Now, Hananiah was the governor of the castle, and he said to him, to Hananiah, I want you to take charge of the city. In some sense, these men were appointed to be the chief gatekeepers, the chief gatekeepers to be in charge. Now, the role of the gatekeeper was to spot trouble, to be aware when things were not Right. Remember in chapter 1, it was Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, who came, who gave the news. This is the issue. He was the one that shared the concerns for God's people. He had discernment to what was happening. But more importantly, they were appointed because of their integrity. And because, verse 2, they were appointed to have charge because of their fear of the Lord. See, folks, integrity is walking before the Lord, both in private and public, in the same way. Integrity is walking before the Lord, both in private and public, in the same way. It's being in private, what you are in public. And godly leadership and the appointing of godly leaders is about character before competence. See, Hananiah was appointed as a leader of God's people because, I'm paraphrasing what it says in the Bible, he feared God 
more than most men do. Wow. So that meant in private, he was the same as what he was in public. In church, it was exactly what he was like in the privacy of his own home with his family. That's why, folks, at Cornerstone Church, we take qualifications that you read in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus regarding godly leadership seriously. Seriously. See, 1 Timothy, let me read this three. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. And in Titus 1, it tells us this. Paul says to Titus, he says, This I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. That's serious, folks. And if you look at those, those qualifications, those attributes, that most of them are attributes that are to be lived out in private and public. See, godly leaders fear God. Godly leaders lead and they protect and they feed God's people for God's glory and for the good of the people that they lead. Folks, at the heartbeat of God's community is godly leadership, so pray for your leaders. At the heartbeat of God's community is clear instruction and discipleship, verse 3. And Nehemiah said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they, while they are standing guard, let them shut a bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. See, Nehemiah here, what does he do? He gives the leaders clear instruction. Do not open the gates till the sun comes out. That's what it means. Don't open the gates. Because if you open the gates before the sun comes out, it's that time of the day where you can't really see and where it's going from darkness to dawn and we can't see. That's when we are most vulnerable. And when those doors are locked, stand guard. See, to go against the clear instruction would make what? The city vulnerable. He gives the clear instruction to help protect God's people. Folks, at the heartbeat of God's community, is clear biblical instruction. Clear biblical sound doctrine that is taught from the word of God. Biblical, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting Bible teaching is what God's people need. Amen? We need it to live. 
We needed to fight sin. We needed to flourish. We needed to reach others with the good news of Jesus. And folks, in this culture that we find ourselves that is completely confused, we need clarity in our teaching. We need clarity in our understanding. We need to hold true to what the Bible says, not what we want it to say. We need to view the culture through the lens of the Bible, not the Bible through the lens of culture. At the heart of God's community, folks, is the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. Not just part of His Word, but His full Word. And it's, and it's in that clear teaching that we disciple others to follow Jesus and help others lead others to follow Him. Nehemiah tells Hananiah and Hanani, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do the same. Appoint guards to stand guard from people within. In other words, teach others to do the same. Help others understand what it means for God's people to be protected and for God's people to flourish. And folks, for us, we are to teach others what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it is. To understand the Bible and also for us to raise up others to do the same. So that we're shaped by the Word of God that we grow to be mature as followers of Jesus, but also so each of you and each of us can disciple others to do the same. One of my life verses, folks, is 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. It says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, give unto faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Why is it my life first? Number one, because my identity is found in the fact that I'm a child of the living God. Why is it my life first? It's because I want to be a man who has tenacity that I want to get, take hold of and be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus that is mine because I'm his child. That I want to know the Bible and be fluent in the context of God's Word because I know that's good for my heart, my family, and for the church that I lead. And I want to see gospel legacy happen for generations to come. Not with the name of Steve Robbo or Cornerstone Church, but the name of Jesus being on the lips of all those who come after. And it's my life first because what Paul is saying to Timothy is take what you've heard in the presence of others, give to others so that they can go and do likewise so that they can go and disciple, that they can go and plant churches. Folks, at the heartbeat of what it is to be God's people is clear biblical instruction and discipleship of others. And at the heartbeat of being God's community is having the kingdom of God as priority. Verse 4. Nehemiah says this, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been built. See, it's interesting at this point, not many people live within the walls. Not many people live within the city. Now, as we read through, there's going to be like a bit of a push to get people to move into the city, to move into the community. But what we see in this verse is that the priority of the people whilst building the walls was not their houses, but the safety of God's people. And folks, this stands in complete contrast to what we read in the book of Haggai. Because in the book of Haggai, he's a prophet from God that goes to speak to God's people who had gone back to Jerusalem a number of years before Nehemiah had returned to rebuild the walls. And their task was to rebuild the temple, the center point of worship. 
But God had to speak to his people through Haggai because they took the, the focus and their priority went from being the worship of God and the building of the temple to the building of their own homes. And Haggai said, God said through Haggai, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Here the priority was not the wall. The priority was the king of God. Folks, at the heart of God's community is having his kingdom as the priority. Having as the priority the desire to having his name glorified, his name proclaimed, his name worshipped, his name honoured in our church, in our families, in our city, and in our nation. Kingdom priority. And maybe some of us need to hear the words of God that was given to God's people. Consider your ways. Maybe we need to forget about the financial crisis and have our eyes open to the gospel crisis that is going on in our city. Maybe we need to consider our ways. Because the heartbeat of God's community is those who have kingdom priority. So we have worship, godly leadership, clear biblical instruction, discipleship, and at the heart of God's people, his kingdom being priority. Number two, we see the roll call of God's community. Verse five, then my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at the first and found written in it. What's interesting, God puts in the heart of Nehemiah what he's gonna do next. Do you see that? It's an overflow of his relationship with God. Now what Nehemiah's gonna do, he's not gonna do like a dry census. You know, every, every 10 years we get that census that we've got to fill out and say who we are, what we do, and all that sort of stuff, and we fill it out, and people like me and others get all excited about the statistics, and we don't really think about it till you come around again 10 years, and you've got to put it in, and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't a dry census, but rather a reflection of what God had done and was doing amongst his people. So before he records his own, before he looks and says, who are with us? Who have we got? Who are part of the roll call who have returned back from exile to God's people? He actually opens up a book with a recording that had been made 75 years before of all the people that had returned. All the people that had returned. You can see that in Ezra 2. It's pretty much a carbon copy of what is there. And he looks back, reading over all of the names and all of the people who had returned. Sean this week shared on one of the WhatsApp, one of the million WhatsApp groups that I'm on. And... Um, a little like video that came from a thing that she has on her phone called Time Hop. Now, Time Hop is an app on your phone that basically reminds you on, on, on a day what you'd put on social media videos and uh, pictures throughout the year. So it looks back a year and five years and 10 years or whatever far it goes. And she shared on one of the WhatsApp group a video that had been put up of our church's 10-year celebration four years ago. And, you know, we look it up and, it's, you know, we're looking at it. And there were people on there, those that we've sent, sadly, those who've walked away. There are people who are in this room. There are pictures and videos all past the last 14 years. Days when Paul had hair on his head and I had none on my face. You know, those days. And it stirred my affections for Jesus. It stirred my affections to see that at the beginning of those videos, there were people who were wandering around in darkness and by God's kindness in and through the, the gospel proclamation of this church now know Jesus. And actually be able to reflect on the evidence of his grace. 
One of the pastors that planted one of our churches was struggling on Monday. He was really struggling. He was just discouraged. And he decided that he would write his wife a text reflecting on the last 18 months of what God had done. And as he reflected, he named names and he, he put in details and he named numbers and he, he shared the wonder and the evidences of God's grace in those 18 months. Folks, Psalm 119.90 says this, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. God is faithful and it endures for all generations. And the evidences of God's grace in what he has done and the assurance of secure, a secure future help us as God's people to move forward. Amen? In the midst of the darkness and the difficulty, in the midst of the potential persecution, in the midst of the struggle, there are shards of evidences of God's grace that shine through in the darkness. Can I encourage you? Go home, spend time, whether that's on your own or whoever you live with, reflecting on the evidences of God's grace in your life because I 100% guarantee you they are there. They are there. And here Nehemiah reads through the roll call of God's people. Names of ordinary people who were faithful to God, who heard the call to return back to him. But not only them, but the many who came after them and who came with them. And there's a few things I just want to highlight in this. We're not going to read it because I don't want to battle those names. Firstly, it's a list of men. It's a list of men, verse 7. You see that? The number of men of the people of Israel. And it's men whose sons also are numbered with them. Have a look at verse 10. The sons of Arias, 652. The sons of Pathath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. But also, it's names of men from different towns and villages. Have a look at verses 26, 26 to 33. It changes from the sons of, and it goes to the sons of Basia, to the sons of and it goes to verse 26, sorry. The men of Bethlehem and Notafar, 188. The men of Anathoth. And it names the men of the different towns and villages. Now, folks, on one level, this is how they would have recorded the names and the families via the names of the men. So this in no way suggests that the women are not included. And what we know from chapter 3, that the women involved in the building of the walls and we know in chapter 5 that it was the women who had the discernment to see that there was sin happening and oppression happening amongst God people but here we have a list of men's names and numbers associated with their men, those men and look at the numbers next to their names there's some with tens there's some with hundreds there's some with thousands of people on the roll call of God's community look at the legacy that comes after the names of these men. There are families and whole towns that are part of the people of God because of the faithfulness of these men. Because they were willing to repent and turn back to God. They were willing to do that. Now we know that to be the case because in the section there, 26 to verse 38, none of the Jewish towns that were south of Hebron are mentioned which must have meant this, that the exiles from those towns, the men of those towns must have said no to returning home. Or they didn't care 
about returning back to God or their affections of where they were living outside of the people of God had, had been stirred by other things. And as a result, they are not mentioned on this roll call. The greatest fight for any man is not pornography, is not identity, it's not purpose, but it's passivity and apathy. It's a posture of just accepting what is happening around you without stepping in. It's a lack of concern and energy for the things of God for the responsibility that God has given you to create the atmosphere and platform for others around you to flourish in him and to flourish for him. Folks, we live in a culture that is suffering an epidemic of toxic masculinity. It's an epidemic. But this is not something new. This has happened for all of time. Because as men take their eyes off who God has made them to be, and then look to themselves to make sense or look to the culture to make sense of what it is to be a man or just passively stand by and do nothing, then others get hurt and others get damaged. And we see it all over the Bible right at the beginning. When Eve ate the fruit, she handed it to Adam, who was standing right next to her. He was passive. He knew what God had said and he did nothing. Or Abraham and Sarah, that in his cowardice was afraid to say that this beautiful woman with his wife, but rather said that it was his sister because he wanted to protect himself. Or Elimelech in the book of Ruth, who doesn't trust the word of God, but takes his family away from the word of God because he thinks that's what's best because he's not looking to God and his word, but looking to himself and the culture. Folks, Men, what this world needs, what God's community needs is Christ-like masculinity. Men who are to look to him and have the same compassion as him, to have the same concern as him, and to have the same focus as him, and to have the same energy as him. And men, we are to lay down our lives, our preferences, our wants, our desires, and we are to take our insecurities and our sins and our failures and we are to lay them at the cross of the suffering servant, the greatest man that has ever walked the planet, Jesus Christ. And we are to embrace our weaknesses. We are to rely on him to help us love well, to help us lead well, to help us protect well to help us to be men of peaceful presence, whether we're 18 or whether we're 88, whether we're married or whether we are single, for the sake of those who are around us and for the sake of this world that desperately needs men like Jesus. And we need to lift our heads, men. We need to lift our heads. And we need to see that the kids in that back room need us to be men like him. That those little boys in this totally confused culture need to know what it is to be a man like Jesus. They need to know what it is. They need to be surrounded by men that love their wives well, that lay down their lives well, 
for their wives. Men who lay down their lives for the other people in their gospel communities to flourish. They shouldn't be looking to the footballers. They shouldn't be looking to the movie stars. They shouldn't be looking to anyone else apart from the men in this room. Because Christ flows from them so much, those little boys understand what it is to be a masculine, godly man like Jesus. And those little girls need to know what it needs to be, means to be honored well and cared for well and protected and respected. If the men of our church were like Jesus, this would be the safest place in the world. See, some of us are from a long line of faithful people, aren't we? We can go back generations of people who have prayed. And some of us are right at the beginning of that line. And some of us, in God's kindness, are seeing the fruit of that in our lives now. But some of us aren't and some of us won't. But that's okay. The fruit doesn't determine the call of what it is to follow Jesus as a godly man. See, it says that a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in. We need to lift our heads and stop thinking about seven days. And we need to start thinking about seven generations. Seven generations. And ladies, please pray that this church will be full of men like that. Men who have a desire to see not their legacy and their name be remembered for generations, but for the gospel legacy in the name of Jesus to be on the lips of every generation to come after us. It's a list of men. And thousands are in the community of God because of their faithfulness. That is my prayer for every man in this room. And maybe some of us need to get on our knees and say sorry and confess for our passivity and our apathy. The passivity of turning one way in bed rather than turning the other way and praying with your wife. The passivity of leaving this church quickly so you don't have to engage with others or staying and welcoming people like Christ welcomes us. It's a list of men. But then you see also that the, the things that roll out of everyone, the priests, verse 39, descendants of Aaron, men who, and those who led those spiritually. We see, verse 43, the Levites who assisted the priests. We see those that come after the sons of Asaph in verse 44. Musicians mentioned loads of times in the book of Nehemiah. We see the gatekeepers, we see those who were servants, generations of godly people who did regular jobs but served God's people in the temple and in the community. And all these people, as you add all the numbers up, comes to about 50,000 people and they were written in this book. That Nehemiah opens and he reflects on God's goodness to them. But folks, as you see this roll call, we also see that some of them could not claim to be in God's people, verse 61. They could who their fathers were. They couldn't prove what their uh, heritage was. 
And some of them, verse 64, were even priests. They were even serving God in some capacity, but they were excluded from priesthood because they could not lay claim. There was no evidence. There was nothing there that meant that they could be on this roll call. There's an old hymn that we used to sing years ago, and actually Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash recorded it, and it goes like this. When the trumpets of the Lord should sound and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair, when the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, when the roll is called up yonder, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Will you? See, in the book of Revelation, we see that when the Lamb of God destroys the rebellious kings and nations, John records all who and all what will come into the new city, the new sanctuary, the new Jerusalem, who will be part of the new heavens and the earth, who will enjoy eternal life. And in Revelation, this is what it says, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who will enter? Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But some of these people in this roll call, and maybe even some of us, God forbid, said, but we worked on behalf of your name. We did things in your name. The people here, they're priests. But it was even the Lord Jesus who said in Matthew, 20, 20, Matthew 7, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, on that day, there will, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did, not, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we not cast out demons in your name? Didn't we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But folks, what is interesting is that none of us can make claim to be written in the Lamb's book of life. See, we can't be on the roll call because of our heritage, because of our character, because of our gifting, because of any family legacy. None of us can lay claim to the eternal life and the glory of heaven in and of ourselves, but we can make claim because of Jesus. Amen. He has the pen. And for those of us who have faith in him, his death and resurrections, our names are there. They are there because of him. Because of him. See, folks, if, if any of us were to die today, if any of us were to die, and you were asked the question, as you arrive in glory, why are you here? If any of us use the first person, we've totally got it wrong. I did this, I did this, or because of this. If we stand before glory, we will use the third person. Because of him. Alistair Begg, who's a pastor in America, gives this wonderful illustration of what this means. 
And he says that when he gets to heaven, he wants to meet the thief on the cross that Jesus said, today you will be in, my, in paradise. He says, I'm, I want to grab him and say, oh man, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? How, how did that go for you when you arrived in glory? How did it go? What did the angel say? He says, well, I, you know, I, I, I went up and, and they looked at me and they went, what are you doing here? I, 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 how, how do you, I don't know. I don't know why I'm doing here. I'm just, I'm just here. Bear with me. Let me just see my supervisor a minute. So the, the angel gets the supervisor and says, okay, what, what, why are you here? And eventually after being back and through, and he's like, I, I really don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He goes, what is the reason that you are here? And he says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. I don't know why I'm here. But the man on the middle cross said I could come. The roll call of God's community is a list of sinners' names who have made claim because on the man on, on the middle cross said we could come. And finally, number three, the contribution of God's people to the community. See there, as you go down, verse 66, they all gathered. 70, now some of the heads of the fathers gave to the work, the governors to the treasury. See, when these people returned from exile, they understood that in order for them to be rebuilt, in order for them to grow, in order for them to get back on track with the mission of God, God had given them things that they had to give in order for this to happen. And we've seen haven't we? The people of Nehemiah's day contributing with their willingness to build and their willingness to fight if that was required. And here, as Nehemiah reads this roll call of God's people, he also sees the people were willing to open their hands and contribute with what they had. They recognized that their financial contribution to the mission of God was important. It was important. See, in light of God's mercy, folks, we are to give our bodies as living sacrifices to the mission of God, to work for God, and to work uh, because of God with the means of open hands. If we are to see the rebuilding, if we are to see the reaching of Liverpool with the gospel, if we are to see the next generation and the one after that raised up for the cause of Christ, we need to see that we contribute to that. We need to see that pouring our money into the things and the stuff of this world gives no legacy to the kids in that room. But if we give what God has given us to the contribution of the building up, that will echo into an eternity. And some of these will be pastors and married to elders and missionaries and women's workers and children's ministries in this church and in churches all over the world. See, the means for gospel work to happen is always provided by God. Amen? And the means for gospel work to happen is provided by God through his people, through his children. The means by which people are saved is through his family. And why do we know that? We know that because the means of the gospel was provided and given to us by him through his own son, Jesus Christ. He gives his own son. And Jesus gives everything for us to be saved. And 2 Corinthians tells us, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that through 
Though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich in Christ. We might be rich. Folks, we are to respond to the mercy of God with our lives. We are to respond to the mercy of God with what we have. My question is to all of us, are we contributing to the work of God with cheerful and thankful hearts? Because we are the means by which God provides for the mission. Are we doing that? See, God's people contributed because they understood the importance of who God had called them to be and what he had done for them. And we are also to contribute because he has called us to be his people who proclaim and shine Jesus. And we also contribute because of what he has done for us. And what he has done for us is give the life of his own son, not a tithe, through a direct debit. What has he given for us? He punished his own son because of our sin. Not a couple of coins in a box. His own son cried out, Father, forgive them. Because they really don't know what they're doing. But I do. Because the joy that's set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame for people like you and for people like me that he calls his children who are the heartbeat of God's community here on earth. So as we break bread now, folks, and as we drink wine, as we hold that broken bread in front of us, as we hold that juice that represents wine, as we look, let us, please look at me. Don't put your Bibles away. Please look at me. As we look at that broken bread in front of us and that spilt wine in front of us, eat it and drink it with a thankfulness of knowing what God contributed in order for me to have the assurance of eternal life. Look what God gave so that I can be his child. And those of us who are men, as we eat and we look at that, that Jesus was willing to lay down his life for the sake of those who he loves, are we willing to do the same? That Jesus that Jesus laid down his life and created the atmosphere and the platform for all those that came after him to flourish, do we do the same? Or are our lives as men in our families and in our homes, in our, in our, in, in, in our church, completely contradictory? And as other people look in, they are totally confused whether or not you follow Jesus. But you know, the wonderful thing is when you look at that bread and you look at that, forgiveness shines. There is a way back. And for some of you, your wives are crying with Jesus every day, wanting you to come back to him. For others, there are brothers and sisters in our church that are praying for you to walk in faithfulness. Because in and through you, atmosphere and platform for others to flourish in him and for him can be created. So as we eat and as we drink, let us not just go through emotion, but look at it meditate on it and thank Jesus for what he's done and ultimately he has done this so that we could be written in his book of life. Amen? Amen.